Hey everyone, before the podcast starts, I just want to say that my novel A Breaking Report is now available on Amazon. If you live internationally, aka not Australia, then you have access to the hardback, the paperback and the Kindle version. Unfortunately, if you live down under, then it's only the paperback or Kindle due to anti-Australian racism. Thanks, Amazon. Regardless, just search up A Breaking Report on Amazon. That is A Breaking Report, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. I really appreciate the support as it's the culmination of five years of writing and uh, truly a labor of love. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Three, two, one, let's jam. Hey everyone, welcome to a special Q&A podcast. I can't believe this is already the 25th one. Uh, I started, and I actually checked the date before I started this podcast, but the first podcast I ever posted was in July of 2021. So it's been close to a year and I'm averaging, well, around two podcasts a month, which, hey, I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty happy with that, that, uh, frequency that's actually the amount I wanted to do uh, when I first started so I'm actually at my 25th podcast so I thought what is something quote-unquote special you know how YouTubers they always have like oh this is my 100th subscriber or this is like my 25th video or something like that they try to do something a little unusual I thought instead of chatting with other people which is what I usually do I would actually take the audience's uh, questions and then hopefully answer it. Uh, So I've cut out all the questions, and this isn't just on the Instagram post. It's also some I got through messages, and I've put them in a bowl. I've, you know, scrunched them up so I can't really see the questions, and hopefully I give you detailed responses. So if the question is like a yes or no, I might elaborate a little more on that because if you haven't noticed, all teachers love their voice. I'm sorry, teachers, if I'm putting you on the spot, but a lot of teachers love their own voice. So I thought we'd we'd do this plan. So I just want to say a quick shout out to two people before I do. I'll make this really quick. Firstly, shout out to Matthew Lloyd. I promised my good friend Nathan that I would do so. So apparently uh, he's just been, you know, a super loyal uh, follower, listens to a lot of podcasts. So man, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And the next person is Sharijay Chatterjee who is also like a small-time podcaster like me. His podcast is called Only Up. Check it out on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Wherever you get good podcasts, as the book commercials always say. And he just reached out to me and he had both enthusiastic words and very supportive words. So, hey, as one small-time podcaster to another, appreciate it, man. So, let's get with the business. All right, first one is... Is there a common dystopia or dystopian trope that you wouldn't mind living in or with? (sighs) Okay, firstly, my initial reaction to that is anytime there's a dystopian, you obviously want to avoid it. But with that obvious comment out of the way, I would definitely steer clear of environmental disaster. I think this is something that I have and a lot of the younger generation has, which is, I think the term is called climate anxiety, if I'm not mistaken. And that is 
if you can guess just from the name, a real anxiety about ecological demise or ecological boom or, or sorry, not boom, ecological doom. And this is manifest in people like Greta Thunberg. And also I've been hearing quite a lot of people, especially young people say that they are not interested in children. Now, this might be because like you can't afford houses. Okay. That might be part of it. But also this idea of like, well, my child will be living through a lot of bushfires and a lot of floods and all that stuff. So uh, definitely not the ecological collapse. I mean, Brave New World is a... mm, I wouldn't want to live in Brave New World, but like, okay, let's think about this. 1984, no way, not not a fan. Um, The other dystopian text that I've read... Uh, for example, I have read, what is the one that I did last year about space writers and aliens? Uh, anyway, I, I've forgotten the name of the book. Uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of the book anyway. Not a big fan of that. To to the class that I did teach, not a big fan of that text. Um, I know about the Hunger Games, but it doesn't really appeal to me. I'm too much of a pacifist to live in that world. Uh, really, I'm too much of a pacifist to live in any dystopian world, I should say. And apart from that, the only other dystopian world slash text I can think of is like Brave New World. And the thing about Brave New World is that it's not actually a, it's a world with very little pain. Um, and the dystopian aspect is how much people numb themselves emotionally in order to not feel what the uh, author what's his name? Huxley, Alfred Huxley. I think that's his name. Uh, what he deemed as human, like to suffer and to feel like pain and to feel dissatisfaction, all that was human and to run away from it through taking a sort of drug called Soma in Brave New World was to actually distance oneself away from the humanity. So that is probably the one that I would choose just because there's the least amount of violence and there isn't the, the threat of ecological demise at your doorstep so if i had to pick one probably brave new world but it's a really interesting book and the first chapter in particular i think is one of the most interesting opening chapters and it talks about how in this world where there is such a powerful government they this government actually shapes human beings being born and they do certain things i won't spoil it you you should check it out certain things to children in order to tailor them towards a specific role uh, so that the world is in constant balance in the way that think if you've ever played Sims or actually Sims is a good example. So let's stick with that. You play Sims and you build a world and you give each character like a certain ho- uh, habit or a certain profession or a certain look. It's basically the government or a high power, a company or whatever designing a uh, certain society. So I know that's pretty grim, but dystopians are grim and there is no good choice. I would probably pick that because there's the least amount of violence and uh, and there isn't climate change destroying countries. All right. Thank you so much for the person who sent that in. Number two, why did I become a teacher and an author? So I would love to become, I, I, I wish I was the child of a billionaire. Uh, Elon Musk, if you want to reach out and, you know, put me add me to your family, you know, feel free to do that. But unfortunately, I'm not. So I needed some way to supplement my artistic endeavors with regular cash. 
And for me, I'm lucky enough that I guess like I come from a well enough background where for me, money wasn't the most important thing. I know um, some people who come from like, you know, maybe like financially more difficult backgrounds, they might put money as more of a priority, which, hey, if that's you or if that's someone that you know, fair enough and no judgments. But I'm lucky enough where I guess I have a lot of what I need to live and live a decently comfortable life. So for me, the most important thing was passion. And something that I really, really wanted to avoid was waking up at 45, having a midlife crisis, buying a motorbike, and, you know, doing stupid stuff because I haven't been satisfied with my life and I actually sold away a lot of my youth for money. Even as a young person, I always knew that time was more valuable than money because time is something you cannot no matter what you do, you cannot get back. But money, you win the lottery, you buy an NFT or whatever, and then maybe, hopefully, you get a lot of money. But time was the one resource that was always progressing in a linear fashion and not in a fashion where you can actually get it back. So because of that, I wanted to choose something that I love. And there is a Chinese saying, uh, I'm pretty sure this saying is found in a lot of different cultures, but I'll talk about the one that I'm familiar with, which says that, you know, when you die, when you pass away, you can't actually hold on to your gold. You can't, there's no point of being buried with your wealth once you're dead. And I think that understanding or that perspective meant that I always wanted to choose something I love doing and I love teaching. I really, really enjoy making resources. I'm really, really enjoy just like, just the profession. And yes, there's a lot of negatives like reporting and stuff and blah, 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 all that stuff. But to me, it satisfied the extroverted aspect of just who I am. I like the idea of speaking to people and I like the idea of speaking about things which I would do for free, like the ideas of romanticism or the ideas of like philosophy, which I always try to like throw into my classes. That's stuff that me and my friends, or is it friends and I, what's the proper English wordplace anyway regardless my friends and i or me and my friends we always talk about this stuff regardless so to me teaching was a really nice balance of both it's active enough where i'm not always in front of a computer it's a pretty stable job as well because it's in the government service usually unless you're in you go in the public sphere sorry unless you go in the private sphere and that gave me i guess enough leisure to do another passion of mine, which is art and to write books and stuff. Because, you know, the holidays for a teacher are very good. And that is one benefit that I will not deny. And that during those two weeks or six or six weeks, I actually have time to, you know, write my book and etc. So I, I thought teaching and, and being an author was a nice balance of both. All right. Uh, when is the next pub session? Well, if you're buying... It's really any time. Question four. Do you have to get permission to post certain stuff? Okay, good question. The answer is technically no, but in reality, it's yes, because there are things which I can't post as a teacher. Now, firstly, I just want to say that this is true in most professions, so... Even if you work in the private sphere and then you write something outrageous like, 
I don't know. Just think of the most edgy thing that you can write that, you know, you might not even believe in it, but just think of an edgy thing that you could put on your social media. There is backlash. And if you're working in a job, there might be backlash. So, for example, if you're working for McDonald's and then you post on your social media that, you know, I hate this job or like, you know, I do certain things to the to the products, you know, certain, certain illegal things like, you know, I... I don't know, I put the buns on the ground or something like that, and then I serve it to the customers. There is backlash. On the other hand, I just want to say as a teacher, there is more of a pressure to conform compared to other jobs because firstly, I worked in the public sphere for a long time, which means it is a government job. And because it is a government job, there is more pressure to be a polite public servant. Right. If I say something um, and people take offense to that, people might think I'm speaking on behalf of the government or on behalf of an organization or an institution like a school. So there is more pressure to shut up. And I think that's true across all government jobs. On the other hand, I think teachers are more extreme, even when compared to other government jobs like, I don't know, people who fix roads or something like that, because there is this idea that we are teaching the next generation and if you know we say something like outrageous or something like that or something that really goes against social protocol there is a fear that this would then transfer onto the students so i've always tried to n- not put my input into uh, that doesn't really make sense i've tried to limit my bias and i use that word not in the negative term but in the sense that everyone is biased, right? You live and you're born in a certain context and that forces you to see the world in a certain way, which is completely fair. But for me, I've always tried to use language in a classroom, which is quite, mm, let's see, it's not apathetic, but it's neutral. That's the right word. It's quite neutral. So I actually remember to the person who posted this, who sent in this question, we actually had a conversation about this um, a while ago. And I was talking about how for, as I was saying, for my resources, for my PowerPoints, for my lessons, I would try to use neutral words. And then this, the person who posted this said, well, how, how about for like lessons about the Holocaust or or something like that? Things which I and 99.999% of the society think is immoral. And my opinion on that is I would still try to use neutral words because it's just a it's a value right if I'm trying to be neutral and allowing my students to come to their own perspective that should I guess apply across the board even to things which 99.999% of students or people disagree with Um, for me I feel like if I'm pushing opinion too much then that kind of hurts my credibility as a teacher uh, because I'm not trying to force people to think my way. And really, I'm just trying to ask questions. Hopefully, hopefully that's what I'm doing. Asking questions and hopefully allowing students to come to a better response. So uh, do you need, basically, do you need permission to post certain stuff? I would say technically no. But if I post something like I hate, you know, etc. And then I want to murder, etc. And it goes viral, I will probably lose my job. So technically no. But in reality... Mm, I don't get permission, but I do have to censor myself. But I think that applies across the board. Okay, next question. Want to play Val? 
Okay, so when I first saw this, I had no idea what that was. But after some research, I'm I think it's Valorant, which is a shooting game. Uh, answer in a simplified form: No, I do not want to play Valiant uh, for a few things. Firstly, I'm usually not a big fan of multiplayer. I just think there's a toxic element, and it's just too competitive. I think I played a fair bit of multiplayer when I was younger. Now I just want to be immersed in the story, so I usually play single-player single games. For example, The Witcher, Witcher 3, fantastic. Uh, recommend it if, you haven't, if you've never heard of this franchise and you want arguably the greatest RPG of all time. So... That's number one. Number two, the shooting games I usually play are more realistic. And I think that's just because I grew up in a, I sound like an old man, in a previous generation or in a previous time, in the dark times when a lot of shooters were like Call of Duty or what's another one? Home, no, not Homefront, um, Battlefield. I love Battlefield or I loved Battlefield, I should say. And these were more realistic shooters. And I, I think that just appeals to me. Halo was another one. Obviously, Halo isn't, it's not that realistic. But compared to like Fortnite and Valorant, and I, and I maybe I'm saying this wrong, or, or maybe I'm miscategorizing this game because I don't I don't really know it. But it's just too bubblegum for me. Like Fortnite, for example, uh, I've never played it, but just from looking at the footage, it's so like sparkly and it's so colorful, and, and it really feels child friendly. Which hey, no hate if if you like that, but I personally like a little more greedy and realistic game so i'm actually going to take this answer take this question and, and actually branch off a little um so firstly shout out to battlefield bad company 2 if anyone ever played that i love that game because of just the teamwork aspect it's still one one of my favorite game and probably my favorite multiplayer shooting game of all time the second game i want to shout out if people want to play a heart racing anxiety inducing shooting game Go play Hunt Showdown. Okay, just search it up. Go on YouTube, Hunt Showdown. Get some friends and play it, and it will scare the hell out of you. So next question, what inspired me to write my book? Which is a great question. I'm not going to speak for 15 minutes because I totally could. Instead, I'll just give you two or three really small things, and I'll move on. Uh, firstly... I've always loved the idea of being able to contribute to like the mural of art. And even when I was young, I was always reading. I always wanted to be an author. So that was always a dream that I had that, you know, it's actually kind of amazing now I think about it. Like I have actually ticked that box off and whether the book is fantastic or it's horrible or somewhere in between, like I am an author, which just feels amazing. So that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I hope this doesn't come off as sacrilegious because it's not meant to, but I feel like being an artist is like the closest thing I can get to being God in a way. And I don't, I hope that doesn't come off as sacrilegious, but what I'm trying to say is like God in the Abrahamic faith in, in Christianity said, let there be light. And then from that command, there was light. In a way, what I'm trying to do with my book is I'm trying to get certain people to feel a certain way so instead of let there be light hopefully when audience reads my book they get the let there be empathy or let there be joy or let there be sadness and the idea that i can write words on a piece of paper and then transfer that onto someone else's brain is like crazy it's just mental that i i can do that or 
other artists can do that and i can watch a film and feel sad or i can watch or i can listen to a song and feel happy like that to me is just amazing and and i feel so lucky to be able to do that uh for anyone who has you know purchased the book or has read the book uh and finally i would say uh really and i'll, I'll say this really quickly when i was younger um i and finally i'll say that this book was somewhat inspired by past relationships that i had and just the emotional charge that i felt after being in a relationship or ending a relationship and i wanted to capture that in the novel because uh, and if i can simplify an experience one time after feeling a lot of emotional trauma i was asked to take out the rubbish bin which sounds like the most easy thing in the world you know you just get up grab the bin go outside dump it in the larger bin and then you're done but because i was in such an emotionally charged state of mind i it just everything felt so vivid and so overly dramatic and so overly painful because that was the state of mind that i was in and i remember thinking to myself if someone had actually walked by me at that exact moment they would not know at all because i was quite stone-faced now that really intrigued me and from that like idea the seed of i wanted to write a book where the audience is able to deep dive into the heart into the soul of the protagonist is something that i really wanted to do so yeah if you check out the book um it's really just like jumping into the shoes of the protagonist and following him for 22 chapters as he journeys toward adulthood Okay, next question. How has your career been since leaving Chatswood? It's been good. Uh after I left Chatswood, I actually worked at this other school um which I will I won't talk about that because one of the question one of the other questions will ask that later on. So, it's been good. Uh Chatswood, big fan of it, you know. I guess I don't really have to say more about that school because a lot of people know that I'm a huge fan. I loved working there and the rapport was great. Just a really good school. It was also the first school and I think because of that there's always this sense of like oh like fond memories that's the first school I ever taught at. First school I ever, you know, participated and really immersed myself in. Uh since then I worked at one other school very briefly. Uh this school I'll mention later on. Uh and then I zipped around as like a a casual for a bit. So I did some days at Epping. I did some days at or one day at Balcombe Hill and you know I just sprinkled stuff here and there and then eventually I landed at Girwin. So Girwin was also fantastic. I think uh my time there was in a way like I didn't get the full year because I started a little later and also because of the um what do you call it the uh teaching online period. So there wasn't as much face to face with students, couldn't build the rapport uh, as much. and you know and maybe that's unfair because i'm comparing that to chatswood where i was there for 3 years straight you know every day but girwin was also fantastic i thought the students were fantastic it's interesting that because girwin is actually more of an academic school the basketball culture wasn't as strong and that's not to say there wasn't ballers at girwin but like compared to chatswood where like students would stay in after after school on friday or something and shoot around there just wasn't that sport culture or it wasn't as strong i should say Um yeah so it's been good 
I guess. I, I like teaching and I really do like this profession. All right. Next question. Why do you exist? Um, <laughs> I feel like this is a haha got you question, right? Like you ask, so there's a Q&A and then you ask them like, I don't know, a philosophical question like, why do you think this meteorite is called XYZ? Or why do you think the color green is called green and not something else? So like, you know, it's a question that's just so broad and so abstract. But you know what? I will take the bait. I will take the bait and answer this question. Uh, why do you exist? So I'm guessing that's me. Well, to be honest, I would say there's no reason I exist. Uh, I do exist, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a reason in the same way. Why does the sun rise from the east? Or why do we call the east the east or whatever? I think a lot of this is just chance. And I'm very lucky that I'm alive, that history or fate has blended in a certain way where I'm here today. Uh, but no, I would say there is no grand universal reason for me to be alive. So a lot of religious people will say that, well, when I say religious, I'm really talking about like Abrahamic religions, whether that's Islam or uh, Christianity or Judaism or even, you know, I know Hinduism isn't Abrahamic faith, but I might even put Hinduism into this because of the idea of the Atman and the permanent soul. Um, anyway, for those religions, there's this idea that I have a special connection with the creator and because of that, the creator has endowed me with the right to life or maybe in a Hindu aspect, my soul, the Atman has been, is a permanent part of this world and every death I will be reincarnated and then, you know, so on and so on. So that is the reason I'm alive because, well, the, my soul has been reincarnated and now I'm in this universe. I think they're all, that's all explanations. But for me, I think in the same way that sometimes a typhoon hits a community or sometimes a comet hits the world and then wipes out dinosaurs. You know, a lot of it is luck and a lot of it is chance. And I guess I would consider myself lucky, but no, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think there's a, there's a universal higher reason why I'm alive. And I would apply that for most things. Okay, next up. Who was your favorite student? Uh, <laughs> hmm. I'm going to give a uh, cop-out answer by saying, firstly, I'm probably not going to say that. There are students who I remember and who stick out in my head. And I'm usually pretty good at remembering students' names. Um, I guess I'm quite biased to anyone who played basketball just because there is that that extra level of communication and a lot of times playing together. But honestly, I've been blessed with the fact that there've been so many good students and there've also been some really, really difficult students. Uh, like, actually, I'm probably spoiling something, but I'll tell you some stuff. So I guess all I'll try to say for this is that I'm not sure if I have a favorite student, but I definitely have favorites. And there are also students who I'm not such a big fan of. And, you know, before people gasp and go, oh, you know, shouldn't you be the the arbiter of equality? And shouldn't you be the person of perfect harmony and, you know, have no bias and preconceptions to everyone? Well, you know, I mean, in theory, yes. But in reality, just as people have their favorite sports team or their favorite teachers or their favorite subjects, you know, I think it also applies to me. But I would say that I am... 
I generally quite try to be quite positive and try to be quite fair. If you pay attention and you come to class and you're respectful, I will be a fan of you and I will enjoy teaching you. That That's what I would say. Okay, moving on. Okay, so this one, I really had to think about this when I got this, but what are your thoughts on the common consensus on sex and how religion shapes that? Ooh, I actually feel like underqualified to answer this, but I'll try. Uh, my common thoughts on consensus, consensus on sex, I well, I mean, this is probably not a very new thought. I think it's important. I also think it's quite hard to measure that because, I mean, this act is usually usually private and it's usually between two people. So, and, you know, not just sex. I mean, like when it comes to flirting or when it comes to dating, like handholding or any stuff like that, it, it's not usually put out in the public for people to, you know, to watch. So because of that, consensus is quite hard to measure. Now, that's not to say that just because it's hard to measure, we shouldn't have some discussion on what it means. And I think that, you know, we have moved in a better situation. Um, even just a few decades ago, if you look at some of the advertisement, there was this idea that within the family, there is no such thing as, you know, you, can, you can't say no because you are married to that person. And because of that, you have a duty to that person and you should always want to sleep with them or you should always be in the mood or something like that. Um, hmm. I think we're heading in a better direction, but I also think that this is very tricky and I really don't think we'll ever get to the perfect equilibrium or to the perfect response. But I think that's okay. And, and the same goes for society. For example, like communism wanted to enact a utopia. They wanted to create this utopia by basically cutting down private enterprise and private profit. On the same hand, capitalism also wants to do wants to create this utopia by allowing people to flourish economically and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, both sides are trying to enact what they think is the better version of the world. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say with that, that's very long, that's a very weird question to bring in communism and, and capitalism. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that we, my my thoughts on the consensus, I, I think consensus in, is important, but that's not groundbreaking stuff. I think it's quite hard to define consensus and, you know, it can consensus change. Um, can you go back and and reevaluate it? You know, these are questions which I did not. It's just above my pay grade, and I think we should have discussions on it. But at the same time, don't expect a final answer because what happens if you run across people from different periods, right, or different cultures or different areas in the world, and then you just you will naturally have a clash, and that makes it um, quite difficult to answer. So, for example, I'll give an actual example instead of being vague. I know in the... Oh, okay, please correct me if I'm wrong. So, feel free to double-check this and take everything I say with a grain of salt. But in Kazakhstan and the areas around the, the Stan countries, or the Stan countries, I think I think that's how, you, how you're supposed to pronounce it, there is this culture or this thing where men are supposed to kidnap women as their bride and this isn't always like a random stranger like oh hi i want to kidnap her and you just grab her and then 
you go and then you're married. Sometimes this can be someone you've been dating or you've been seeing for a while. But but regardless, and I'm not saying this is very common, but the idea is there should be some forceful, unexpected take, I, I think. Okay, please check up on this. Well, as someone who didn't grow up in that society, I think that is immoral. I think that is wrong. And I use the word immoral um, in a subjective way. I don't mean moral in the sense that you know God has come down and said, this is moral, this is immoral. But for me, I come from a different society. I think it violates personal choice. So because of that, I, I think it's strange. But on the other hand, there are women who participate in this, in those countries. Like I've watched a documentary where like the mother of, of the woman being kidnapped or maybe kidnapped is too strong of a term because sometimes they agree to the idea, right? Like I know my husband will try to, oh, sorry. I know my boyfriend will try to propose and he has to do it in this way. So I'm expecting this. Um, let's just say taken. Uh, but, you know, if you're, if you're more comfortable with kidnapped, I'm okay with that. There are women who participate in this and actually help help it run smoothly. So I, I've seen like the mum will go, okay, oh, you want to marry my daughter and you need to do it through this method. I'll make sure that she's at X, Y, and Z at, at this time. And then you can quickly... I, this sounds so bizarre. I actually can't even believe I'm like, I can't believe I'm saying these words, but then you can go and kidnap her and then get married. Um, I think to most people listening to this podcast, that is both strange and bizarre. But the reality is, well, how do you come to a common consensus on the idea of sex? So does that just mean this idea is uh, should be founded within a single community? So only people in your community should should have these thoughts. But then but even then, like, it's not like everyone in, in a suburb or in a country thinks the same. So basically what I'm trying to say, it's quite hard to come to a consensus. Um, and I've actually missed out the entirety of the second part of the question, which is, and how does religion shape this? I would say religion great, greatly shapes this because, well, I see religion as just another philosophical lens. It's just another filter up in front of your eyes, which helps you or Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say help. It it, um, it can help you. But really what I think is religion, like any other philosophical thought. So if you have a romantic thought, and I mean romanticism in like the like the 19th century uh, way, or if you, uh, I don't know, pro-cryptocurrency or something, or you are anti-government or whatever big philosophical thought or yeah, what philosophical thought you have, it's a filter in front of your eyes which helps you see the world in a certain way. Okay, so for example, if you're, if you're a communist, then you see certain events through a communist lens. And I think religion is another one of those lens which has greatly shaped the world. Um, it has shaped it so much that I think a lot of the discussion around uh, sexuality is religious. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that's good or do I necessarily think that's bad. Um I've heard people, I've heard people argue against same-sex marriage because of the because of Christian Bible, and I'm sure other religions do it as well. Okay, I'm just mentioning Christianity because that's something I'm exposed to. And at the same time, I've also heard Christians argue in favor of same-sex marriage. Okay, using the Bible and how God loves everyone, etc., etc., etc. So, regardless, I think religion has greatly shaped our understanding of sexuality. And even if you're not religious, I think some of the ideas still permeate. So, for example, this is something that one of my friends said, and he's a Korean friend who actually wrote one of the questions uh, and, and submitted it. So, shout out to you. So, he's Korean, and he said that Christianity was the first 
uh, what's the right word? Religion or uh, culture or a source that that introduced this idea of one-on-one relationships. Like when you get married, you should marry someone one-on-one. Now, I am not a historian, but I have doubts if that's true. If Christianity was, you know, before Christianity, there was was no such thing as a one-on-one union, which I don't think is true because I'm pretty sure they did that in Judaism as well, which obviously predates Christianity. But even, even if let's just say my friend is incorrect in his claim that that before Christianity, there was no such thing as a one-on-one relationship. I agree with him. I agree with his following statement. And he said that uh, even if you are not religious, this idea of the one-on-one pairing is so seeped into our culture. And I think that does have a religious background. And... And so without giving another 10 examples, I would just end with this. I think religion has greatly shaped our understanding of family and society and sexuality. And I think that is what it was trying to do. Well, I should say dogmatic religion. Uh, I'm not I'm not really sure. Okay, I said I wouldn't give you another, another example, but here I am. Uh, one of my friends said something which I thought was quite knowledgeable and, and quite uh, intelligent. He said, the Buddha wasn't trying to create buddhism he was actually trying to create buddhas so maybe you could say the dogmatic like the written down the structural the hierarchical idea of a religion would try to structure would try to shape society or maybe that's not true either but regardless you know now now i've just i'm going everywhere yes i think religion has greatly shaped society all right next question what are your thoughts? Uh, this one is wild. I'm actually not even sure if I'm keeping this in, but what are your thoughts on furies and why do you think some people dislike them? Okay, this was a wild question because um, I had to I had to research what furies were. So uh, let's see. Okay, firstly, I think there is... <laughs> I will actually... I'll give, I'll give you a proper response. So... Uh, firstly, I think there is an uncanny, uncanny valley aspect to it. So if anyone doesn't know what uncanny valley means, um, it, it's basically when something is quite human-like, but not human-like enough. And there's this little weird area where like, this is why we find porcelain dolls quite scary because they look human enough, uh, but there's something still a little bit off about them. So I think anytime people wear masks, it is quite intimidating. And, and no, I'm not talking about like like a face mask, uh, like as in like, a, you know, the COVID prevention face mask. I'm talking like the witch doctors, right? That it's just humanoid enough that it's somewhat recognizable, but it's, it's pretty scary. Uh, so I think firstly, there is this hiding of the, of the, um, what do you call it? Uh, of the identity, which is a bit unnerving. Secondly, I think this is just a new subgroup. So in the same way that anime and K-pop got, you know, I guess kind of a beating before they became somewhat accepted, I think the same way for Furies. They, like wearing um, uh, like animal masks and animal suits and stuff, it, it's just it's just unexpected. So I, I think that also breeds resentment. Now, I don't think that's fair. I don't think, you know, you shouldn't resent something because it's new. Uh, but yeah, that's also why. 
And I think the other is, so I actually, like, I legitimately looked this up because I was, uh, you know, I wasn't really sure. But someone said that uh, it's because these people, uh, they, like, re- they, they go out and they change their avatar or they will go out and tell everyone that this is a big part of their personality instead of keeping it hidden to yourself. And whilst I think there is some truth to that, like, it seems like people within this community are very forward um, with telling other people. And I think that's the same criticism that vegans and vegetarians get as well. But on the other hand, and I'm defending ve- vegans and vegetarians as well when I def- when I defend Furies, um, I don't think that's fair because like I see a lot of people have basketball profiles as well. And I would just think it just seems strange to people. And people, a lot of people... Uh, will attack things which seem strange, uh, partly to distance themselves away from it. You know, like, oh, this is weird. I'm I'm in the moral right to criticize and laugh at this. But also, I think a lot of times people do this uh, when they're very critical about something. It's to point the finger away from themselves as well. So I'm not sure if that's true in this case, but that's probably my thoughts on why people dislike it. But, but... Uh, the first part of your question. So, what are my thoughts? Uh, I guess I'm just indifferent, really. Um, if people want to put on like uh, like a, a suit with fur, then you know, feel free. It just seems really hot. That's probably my opinion. And okay, and yes, it's a little strange for me, but yeah, I don't see a reason to hate. Okay, next question. By the way, that was a wild question. So. Given your time as a history and English teacher, what is the most rewarding thing about both subjects? So, so when I was teaching history students and I would tell them I was an English teacher, they would flip out because like, what? No way. This is just so bizarre. And when I would tell people, uh, students that I was teaching English that I was actually history trained, they would also have a very similar reaction. So I love both subjects. I love both subjects very dearly. I would say that I've always tried to combine both because I think in high school or in, in, in school or in life, we try to divide up things like, you know, English is different to mathematics, which is different to philosophy, which is different to science, etc. But in reality, a lot of these things coincided. And I'll give you one example because I'm all about giving examples as a teacher. But if anyone is familiar with romanticism, which is a uh, an artistic movement, just search up romantic romantic paintings and i don't mean romantic in the sense of twilight or the notebook i mean romantic in the sense of thinking nature is this beautiful thing that's really what romantics in the 19th century tried to do they tried to elevate nature Um, and so that is a artistic movement and you might say it falls under english which i think it does on the other hand, this movement really came about because of historical things, because of scientific discoveries, which have actually destroyed a lot of the environment. And this artistic movement was a reaction to scientific progress. So in many ways, these fields overlap to understand romanticism. And my opinion about history and English, I really tried to teach both. So a lot of times when I was teaching history, I would actually incorporate English into it or art into it, and vice versa, when I'm teaching art or when I'm teaching English, I would incorporate history into it. Um, the, re- the rewarding things about both, I would probably say history is easier to teach, and this is primarily because 
of two things. Firstly, a lot of students are lazy and they don't read the book. So because of that, if you're teaching a book and the students haven't read the book, there's already a huge disadvantage. On the other hand, if I'm teaching World War II, I would say 99% of students have actually heard of World War II. So there isn't this need to teach the basic details as much. But if, for example, I'm teaching Frankenstein and no one has read Frankenstein, well, we have a problem. So that's number one. Number two, I think, as I'm repeating myself, I think a lot of students are lazy and they don't like to come to their own conclusion. And in history, there is less of a need to do that because things are just the way we teach it. And I'm not saying history is not subjective. I'm just talking about how we teach it and how the course is made. History is more quote-unquote facts-based, whilst in English, in just the way we teach it, it's more up for interpretation. So this poem can be about, well, especially with postmodernism, right? Uh, with postmodernism, there's this idea that this poem can be about fingernails to one person, and for someone of a different context, it can be about the importance of keeping your iPhone safe or something like that. So I would say history is easier to teach, but I love both dearly. Okay, moving on. Given the knowledge that you have now, how would you say you would have better... No, I'm ruining this. Given the knowledge that you now have, how would you live a better childhood. So basically the idea is if I can go back in time and, and relive my childhood, what would it be like? Uh, firstly, I would say that I'm pretty happy with where I am now. So you know when you ask your mom or dad something or you make a joke and they turn into a lecture? That's exactly what I'm about to do. So from this one question, I would say I'm actually pretty happy where I am. So in that sense, I'm not sure I would change anything because if you did, it's like a ripple effect. I don't really know if I would be here right now. And I'm satisfied where I am. And I'm sure if we did change something, so if we go back in the past and, and I went to a different high school, I went to a different uh, primary school, or I, I went to another country or something like that, I'm sure I, or I hope I would be happy um, in that different position. But right now, it's really hard for me to imagine that, right? If people say, oh, what, you know, imagine if you were like a, a homeless child living in Nepal. Well, it's really hard. Or imagine if you're a 13th century Viking that got teleported to Shibuya, right? It, it, it's really hard to do that. So firstly, I would say um, in a very, you know, lecture kind of way, I'm pretty happy with where I am. And I think that's the position that most people should aim towards, that they should be satisfied with where they are. Um, if I, you know, but let's let's actually approach and, and address this question. I would probably say I had a huge, uh, hmm, let me try that again. I was very insecure uh, during high school, and I, and this kind of surprises people, but I found it quite difficult to talk to new people and make friends because I had so much anxiety. And you know, I know a lot of people go through this, like you know, oh, do I look good, or you know, do I sound smart, or you know, are my grades good, or you know, am I am I a good athlete, or stuff like that. These same doubts which plague every person young and old, you know, they have plagued me as well. So I would probably go back to a younger self. Uh, and this is during high school. So primary school, I think I was relatively okay. And I would just tell myself like, hey, it's okay. Um, or respect yourself a little more and don't sell out. Don't feel like your opinion is worthless. 
because that's actually what I did feel. And I think that's one reason I did become a teacher, uh, uh, apart from the other stuff which I've mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. I just wanted people to feel like they belonged. And I wanted teaching to be uh, not just an academic thing. I wanted people to find emotional fulfillment at school. I want people to develop good relationships with their peers at school. I wanted people to excel academically and and find a purpose for themselves and for their life. And I feel like I was missing a lot of that, maybe because I didn't really have a a role model. But that's what I would tell myself, you know, just respect yourself a little more and, and be happy with your opinion. If people don't, people disagree, that's okay. But it's really hard to, you know, to feel that way when you're, when you're young and you're locked in an environment. And I've been thinking about this. High school is an environment where you, you get locked in and the stuff that you do in year seven, people can still bring it up in year 12, right? Because it's in a collective memory. Like it's not like people switch high schools all the time, but in university and in the workplace, there's so much more switching. There isn't this thing of like, I've done this one dumb thing when I was 13 and it is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. So I think in many ways, high schools breed some sort of like, I don't want to say breed bullying because that's incorrect. But I think when you see someone for too much and too too long, I feel like it's hard to change your identity. And you feel like you are at the mercy of the group because you see these people all the time that their opinion of you actually affects you quite a lot. So yeah, very long-winded, like every other teacher's response. All right, what was your least favorite and favorite school? Okay, so so let's talk about the least favorite part. And this is something that I was alluding to before. There are two schools that come to mind. There is one school, and I'm not giving away any names if, if anyone's interested. I'm not, I'm not saying the name. But there was two schools, and one of them came during PRAC, which if anyone is unfamiliar, it's just basically when I was a uh, university student, I was sent to certain high schools in order to work for a very brief period of time. There was no pay, unfortunately, but I was working under a teacher, uh, I guess a professional teacher, someone who's been in the field for a few years or decades, and I was learning off them. And basically, it's like a transition program, so I can dip my feet into the water. There was a school I taught at which was really, really rough, and I say this because I heard some students actually say that like Chatswood was a bad school. Some Chatswood students say that Chatswood was a bad school. And I actually heard this in Girwin as well. And I just remember thinking like, you have no idea because the school I worked at was so rough. And what I mean by that was like, I got hurled with so many swear words and so many racist comments. It was unbelievable. I, I remember actually, I honestly considered giving up teaching. Because it was like that overwhelming. So let let me just give you some context. I came from a private school and every time we'd see a teacher, it's yes, sir, no, ma'am, or no, miss. I don't think we actually said ma'am, but no, miss, or no, missus, or whatever like that. At the very least, like it, it's very, very respectful. Um, ironically, private the things about private schools is students are very respectful towards teachers, but they they're so mean to each other. Like the year 12s are so mean to the younger grades and et cetera. And I don't think public schools have that issue, but that's a story for another day. And I remember this one day, like I think one week in, I had three students call me, will I get cancelled for saying a racist word against myself, <laughs> against my own ethnicity? Um, 
I'm just repeating what they said. So I hope I don't get cancelled. But I had so many students call me chink or, you know, ching chong or stuff like that. And this might sound strange because my last name is ching, C-H-I-N-G. But I never really, for some reason, made a connection between, you know, ching chong is the, the slur that's often thrown against East Asians, in particular Chinese. But I don't know how this escapes me, but I never really connected ching and the slow ching chong, which sounds ridiculous because it, you know, like to anyone listening, you you probably think, you know, that's a lie. But honestly, I never connected that until that school. And they would make those comments like Mr. You know, and instead of saying my name, they would say the slur. And I just remember going home and thinking like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to quit. Like I've not done anything to these students. Why are they racially abusing me? And what's interesting is, I spoke to the head teacher and she's like, as a woman uh, teaching, um, I get so much stuff as well for being a woman. Um, she was also like, uh, she also had darker skin. I, I think she was, um, well, I'm going to pronounce this right uh, to the Garoween students who taught me this. Desi, Desi. Uh, I am probably ruining that, but she was like, she was Indian. I'm pretty sure. I know I'm definitely sure she was Indian. And because of that, she got a lot of racist stuff as well. And then you throw in the fact that she's a woman and there isn't the same sense of respect for female teachers. Unfortunately, there isn't the same sense of respect. Um, and if you're a minority and you're not white, that respect lessens as well. Now, obviously, you can overcome that. I'm not saying like if you're if you're if you have a certain ethnicity, then it's game over for you. And this Indian teacher was fantastic. Uh, but she told me like she would get racist comments and sexist comments all the time, and she said, "So what." Yes, it sucks. Yes, it's unethical. But but you have to walk in that classroom and show that you're resilient. But not only are you resilient, you are unaffected and you are the adult in the classroom. So if anyone remembers from my first year of teaching at Chatswood, I recently left that really difficult school and it was really hard. But by the end of it, I'd actually developed a very, uh, very good rapport with some of the senior students and some of the younger students were you know, I was actually able to intimidate them and scare them into line. Now, I'll, I'll bring up chats with in a sec. You, you'll see why why that comes in later. But um, it was it was interesting that by the end, actually, some students were actually more scared of me than my prac teacher or my supervising teacher, I should say, because I knew because I looked young and because I was like, uh, I guess, a foreign, like I was a prac student. You know, I wasn't a, a full time teacher and, and they knew that. I needed to be more intense and I need to make sure my um, my discipline was better. And I actually think it taught me a lot because it taught me how to like raise my voice. It taught me how to shout. It taught me how to like go off if necessary. And I'll give you a few experiences of why that school is so difficult. Um, I remember, I remember on a Friday afternoon. And this is what they don't teach you in university. In universities, when they, teach, when they teach you to be a teacher, they always give you the best examples. Like, oh, you're teaching at a lovely school and there's 30 students. Can you teach a class pretending that you're a teacher of that class? And in those situations, when I'm teaching my university peers who are pretending to be students, none of them are ever swearing at me. None of them are flipping tables. None of them have come, come in hungry. Uh, skipped breakfast or seeing their parents go to, through a divorce or maybe they have but they they control it better because they're just older um but for this school 
It was a Friday afternoon. It was really, really hot. Fans were on. And this student, he's kind of like a quiet, kind of annoying student. He unzips the person next to him. He unzips his pencil case and then flings it at the fan. It hits the fan. The pencil case hits the fan and it explodes like shrapnel, like World War One shrapnel. And I just remember thinking like, that is my Friday lesson gone. Because now it's not about academics. It's about like controlling these crazy like animals who just want to get out of the class and want to throw stuff at each other and want to like topple chairs and tables and stuff like that. So that was probably my least favorite. But even as I say that, I will say there were some great students even in that school who I connected with and who were very respectful to me. And I remember when I left, they actually got me chocolate and they got the the other student from the university who came in with me, they gave her flowers as well. So I knew after that, I knew a few things. Firstly, my discipline was a lot better. I was better, I was able to better control students uh, and better able to control the classroom, which this is where I bring in the Chatswood thing. The first term or the first two terms of Chatswood in 2018, Students told me they were afraid of me, which is like so funny because like, you know, that was the first time I was ever teaching uh, properly. And it's crazy because I do look very young. And uh, I was just, it was just kind of blew my mind that people were afraid of me. But that's because I came in with the same, like you are going to war mindset I got from that other least favorite school. So yeah, that's number one. Um, Yeah, I still can't believe people thought people were like afraid of me. But hey, that's kind of cool to hear as a teacher. Uh, and also I knew when I had developed that bond with those students, I knew that even in such a difficult school, I could enjoy teaching, uh, which meant that I did think at the time, and I still think now I'm very lucky to have this job and I really do enjoy it. So those are some of my thoughts. I haven't actually mentioned much about favorite school and, you know, that's because if I do, this podcast is going to be two hours long. I'll just say that there were two schools that stick out to me, Chatswood and Girouin, uh, mainly because I just spent the most amount of time there. Um, so yeah, without giving too much information because I don't really like to pick favorites. Um, I'm happy picking not favorites or, or anti-favorites, but I'll just say Girouin or Chatswood. Okay, next up. What does passion mean to you and how did it manifest within yourself as you transform transitioned into adulthood from an extremely confused person that likes concepts but not work so i decided to add the final section in uh just because i feel like that clarifies the question a a little i would say passion to me is intrinsic and this is something that i talk about a lot in high school students get a lot of external motivation or exterior motivation. And what that means is you want to get 99.9 because you want to get 99.9 and you want to get that award. You want to be the best in the school, but you don't really like writing down the scientific table three times. You don't really like writing English essays, but you really like the reward, which, hey, I'm not judging. I get it. I use that motivation as well. But the thing is that isn't really sustainable. Because once the prize has been taken away, once you know that you can't get the 99.9 because you've graduated uh, or that, that prize is no longer there, then, then you're not going to write essays. You're not going to memorize the scientific table. So what I would say 
is to the person that likes concepts but not the work, try to find internal motivation. And this is something that I preach quite a lot to people. And also, I think that's one thing I wanted to teach as a teacher. So obviously, there's the academic side, you know, like World War One started in 1914 or something like that, or uh, Shakespeare was born on this date or whatever. Yes, I want to teach that. But something I think that's even more important is I want people to see that you can grow up and do something that you love and something I do love is teaching. Like, And I hope people can see that. And that's probably the most important thing I want to teach. I want people to know that you can grow up and do something that you love. And I hope that makes people optimistic. So to me, if you don't like doing the work, but you like the concept, then, and this might be judgmental, but actually you can probably, probably some of this links back to my previous podcast where I talk about, am I too condescending? So to the person posting this and you want to deep dive into my thoughts on this, maybe check out the podcast, am I too condescending? I think that's like 22 or 23. Um, I would say if you like the concept, but not the work, then you probably are not internally motivated or internally motivated enough. Because if I talk about writing and the book that I recently published, I love the concept of writing a book and being an author, but the work, every step was just as rewarding. Every time I put pen to paper, I felt satisfaction and was grateful for the grind. And I know that sounds so lame because of the internet, but that's how I felt. So to me, to this person, I would say maybe find something that you are really, really passionate about because I would generally, you know, as a, as a principle, I refuse to believe there is nothing on earth that does not get someone motivated. And this motivation, and I don't mean this in the sense that you have to be Elon Musk. You have to be a gazillionaire. If you like making origami, that's awesome. If you like pottery, that's awesome. So find something that you are actually passionate about. Okay. Do you think people can find genuine passion in their work or school? If so, if not, sorry, if so, or if not, do you think there has been any significant change in the this perception throughout the last few decades. I think people can actually, this flows very well onto the last question. I think people can find genuine passion. And I say that from experience because I found genuine passion. Um, At school, I was also very curious. I think this is one thing which defines my characteristic. If there is like one defining trait of me, um, and I hope this doesn't sound very egotistical because there are a lot of flaws as well, but I think one defining trait is I'm very curious like and I think that's actually why I started this podcast because um, I think it was episode five or episode six I interviewed someone with dwarfism and I'd known this girl for a few years but I never had the I guess courage to ask because I felt it would be disrespectful so that I actually started the podcast so I could ask this person like what is it like having dwarfism I'm really really curious to know what your life is like what are the blind spots which I simply don't know because I don't have dwarfism and I'm just so curious. So I really think that is one thing about me which stands out. Uh, How is this relevant to the question again? So yes, I think people can find genuine passion. Um, Has there been any significant, significant change in this perception throughout the last few decades? So I'm generally not a big fan of essentialism and what that means is making grand sweeping 
uh, statements like this generation is better than the last generation or the young generation is worse or life or music was so much better in 2005 compared to now. Like to me, they're very essentialist, which means they're very like black or white. And, and I just don't think, you know, I don't think the world usually works like that. So uh, I think there are some differences from now and, you know, 30 years ago and 40 years ago, but a lot of that can be explained through like historical changes or, or financial changes and not just like this generation sucks because they're snowflakes and they have no humor and you know the old generation is all bad because they hoard money and boomers and blah blah like to me that's too essentialist so i would say um i think there has been change i i think people i think it's a more pessimistic world in the west that's a keynote to mention in the west i think things and people are more pessimistic and partly because the living standards have gone down. And I don't mean that in an essentialist manner in the sense that people now are lazier so they don't work than they were 40 years ago. 40 years ago, really the only places that were successful financially were Europe, North America, and Japan. That was it. Every other area was poor. But right now, the world has changed. And with the rise of certain countries like India, for example, or China, with these the rise of these economic countries, the wealth is now more distributed in a more equal manner, which means some of the wealth from America has been drained into India, for example. And now, does that benefit the quote-unquote Western world? Probably not, because then the wealth and the power has been distributed um, in a more equal manner but does that benefit like humanity as a whole yeah probably so i guess i'm answering from a very western centric point of view to the person who sent that in i think there has been great changes and um or there has been a change and i feel people are more pessimistic and things like climate change fear or anxiety and things like working online has kind of there's a lot of benefits like i'm not stuck in traffic and stuff like that or people aren't stuck in traffic and it's just so much quicker to send an email than have a meeting and stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you save a lot of money and, and you can sleep in more. On the, other, on the other hand, there is this relationship distance that technology has brought. So, yeah, I'm actually not sure if I, if I answered this question. So, yeah, I think... So, to summarize, I think people can be genuine and people can find passion in their work or school and i say that as someone who has found a lot of passion in their work in has there been any significant changes i think in some areas in the world there has been change but in some other areas they see the future as more bright because they have better economic prospects are you a leftist hmm well i'm generally not a big fan of naming myself because i have jumped everywhere on the political sphere i've jumped Left, right, middle, center, up, down, north, east, west, anything. So anything and everything. So I would consider myself left wing right now. Uh, I I feel like that's slightly different to leftist because ist, anytime you add an IST, so I'm a chemist, for example, uh, that means you are a person who just does this. Or that's the, that's the perception that you give when you say I'm a chemist or I'm a leftist. Um, when you say I'm a left wing, it, it makes it sound like you're more flexible in your approach. And, you know, as someone who's been on the right, 
you know, I started my teaching career as someone who was more on the right. And what's interesting is I found that, and, and I actually tried to correct this during the time. When I was more on the right, my lessons would skew a little more to the right. And I knew that because, you know, everyone is biased and, and I'm biased as well, just like everyone else. And I would try to autocorrect and make it go a little more left in order to, in order to give a more balanced perspective. Um, so nowadays, I also try to do the same thing. So I'm more on the left. And I try to autocorrect a little and go a little more to the right to give a more quote-unquote centrist point of view, uh, which can mean that I am stifling my opinion sometimes. But yeah, just to go back on the previous comment, when I was more on the right, like it wasn't that I was trying to give the left a, a, a negative view. It was more like I just didn't have good resources from the left because I wasn't listening to their material as much. But yeah, I, I would generally say I'm on the left wing for a few reasons. Firstly, I would say the left is probably better. Now this, I would say, you know, I said that I don't like making essentialist comments like, you know, the left wing is this or, you know, um, Swedish people are this or, you know, millennials are this. But I would say if I can make an ex uh, essentialist comment, the left is probably better at dealing with climate change than the right because the right cares a lot about freedom of the individual. Fair enough. I think that's a good quality. And I also think they care a lot about economic profit which I don't care for as much. But um, the left, I think, sees climate change, and I think it's more effective because of this, sees climate change as like a government or social thing. Uh, if we implement certain laws or certain policies, then we can deal with climate change in a more collectivist and more effective manner, which I do think is true. So from that perspective, I think climate change, I am left. And even when I was on the right wing, uh, or more right, I should say, I had this thought as well. Um, I would also say some, there's two other things which push me to the left. Uh, I think the right, right now, the right wing is someone, I said someone like it's a person. The right tends to see society as fixed and they try not to change society. So, for example, I'm making generalizations, but the right, you know, you should, you should wear suits and I know this is such a simplified idea, but you know, stick with me. Like you should, you know, be proper. You should wear suits. You know, there's a defined hierarchy of who's on top, you know, who's got the most money. And then there's people down the bottom, you know, people earning less and they're in that position. They're earning less because they have less skills and the world is divided equally and both fairly. Um, I just don't feel like that's true. And there's a few things which changed my mind. Firstly, in a few places in America, and I, I use America because they are such a capitalist country. They are so overwhelmingly capitalist. Where if you have the money, your life is so different. And if you don't have the money, then oh well. Like medicine companies can charge you thousands of dollars for like certain pills, uh, certain injections that you need, or you'll die. But you know, who cares? It's a capitalist world, right? If you don't have the money, then get the money. So a few things changed. Firstly, the idea that um, like mothers, uh, this example involves moms. That's just what I read online, but I'm sure you can throw in dad and it's exactly the same. But the idea that you can work two jobs or three jobs and still not own a house is crazy. Like, like for example, uh, like Kevin Durant, 
how did Kevin Durant get brought into this? But Kevin Durant is a basketball player, and he said his mom worked two to three jobs to pay the rent, and she still didn't own a house. So are they lazy? I don't think they're lazy, but the right will say, you know, they're in that position because they just don't have the skills, or they'll say they're lazy. But I, I just don't, I just don't really think that's true. So that's number one, and a few other things that changed my mind that pushed me left is. Did you know in America, and once again, I'm using America because they are quite right-wing in comparison to Australia, and they are very capitalist. Uh, In America, a lot of people are put in jail because there's an economic profit. Companies like McDonald's, they actually use prison labor in order to make clothing or make toys or something. So there's actually more of a financial profit. So once again, profit. This is the big thing that the right really likes to elevate. There's a financial profit to put people in jail and to maximize their sentence because that means McDonald's can pay or they don't have to pay because it's it's prison labor or slave labor, really. They don't have to pay them and they will make them their uniforms. So the CEO of McDonald's gets a lot of money. The shareholders of McDonald's earn a lot of money. Um, and there's actually been cases of prison companies. I'm not making this up. Search it up. If you don't believe me, search it up. Prison companies actually suing states because they're not putting enough people in jail and so the prison companies are not earning enough that is crazy that is mental and when i saw that i was like man if you chase economic profits too much which is usually usually what the right elevates there is a real problem and obviously throwing the climate change you know issue as well um something else that changed my mind as well uh coming back to my previous point of how the right usually thinks society is fixed and that uh, the right has a big problem with like fat acceptance uh, because they're like, well, the people in newspapers or magazines are only there because they are beautiful. And it's like, if you listen to Jordan Peterson, like it's a fact that they're beautiful and there's no amount of like change that, that can make me think someone who's like overweight is beautiful or something like that. Um, So basically, they see the world and human behavior as like completely normalized and standardized. So our current model of human behavior is makes sense and is biologically right. But, you know, I just don't think that's true. And I'll give you two examples, uh, both coming from Japan. Firstly, if beauty is so biological and we and everything we do is biological, why did samurais kill themselves? Doesn't that automatically break the right-wing idea that everything we do is biological? So beauty is inherently biological. So everything we value that is beautiful comes from a biological um, lens. So I I just don't think that's true. And secondly, did you know there was a period, I think it's in the high-end period in Japan, uh, I think it's the 11th century, but you can search that up, where women were supposed to put black paste, black I don't know, charcoal, something, something black on their teeth. Um, Yeah. And that to me is kind of crazy because like black teeth usually means decay. So it goes against biological. It goes against biology, right? Why would anyone want black teeth? But the reality is that was their beauty standard and it did go against biology, quote unquote biology. And uh, one more example from a more modern perspective, you know, tattoos are very popular, but think about the idea of injecting ink into your body, right? And I'm not not hating on tattoos. If you want tattoos, go get them. But like, that's a pretty crazy idea. And it goes against quote unquote biology in the sense, why would you want an external uh, substance, which can be poisonous 
in your body. So that's a lot of discussion to say, yes, I am more left-wing right now, but I am also very open to changing. And as someone who has been on the left and the right, and like I said, every political position, um, I I have retained some information or some empathy from each position, and I feel like I can understand people from other perspectives. And finally, the last question, why are you so alpha? God's plan. Take it easy. Thank you for tuning into Safety Lost with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this, then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other places that can be found in the description.